Some heroes willingly leave the comforts of the nest for glory, for adventure, for salvation. Others need to be kicked out. Either way, you have to leave home in order to start your life's journey. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, down and go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of your guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. Rocked by frightening spiritual revelations at church and painful personal revelations at home, Father David is plunged into a crisis the likes of which he has never known. Will his fight-or-flight instincts serve him well? This is Chapter 1. Part three. Father David rubbed his eyes and tried to focus. No, you're right, Bishop Hovey was saying. I don't need to know the details. But are you sure you're doing the right thing? Yes, Father David replied. Have you considered accessing our employee assistance program? They're very good, I'm told, and it's totally discreet. I could get Judy to give you the number. No, I think I'm doing the right thing, Father David said. I mean, David, the bishop persisted. The two of you are going to have to work this out someday, somehow. I know that, Father David replied. I don't want to tell you what to do, David, but I do have to be honest. This doesn't feel right to me. Bishop Hovey? Father David struggled to contain the quivering in his chin as he considered what he was about to say. I almost hit her. He looked away, holding back tears. Okay, Bishop Hovey said, okay. He leaned forward across the coffee table and patted Father David on the knee. It'll be okay. You'll work it out, I'm sure. The bishop rose and returned to his desk. Well, since you called this morning, I've been able to find a number of interesting possibilities. He shuffled through some papers on his desk. The thing is, there's nothing here, nothing close by. But I think you aren't looking for something close, are you? So I've called Doug Long. He was a classmate of mine. His diocese takes in Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands in British Columbia. He's been having trouble filling an interim position in a relatively remote part of the island, up the coast. Bishop Hovey found the paper he was looking for and held it up to the light, inspecting it as if it might contain secret writing. Have you heard of the Pacific Rim National Park? Well, it's the parish of Tofino, and I don't even know how to pronounce this. You click, you click... Apparently, they're the two coastal communities at either end of the park. 
He thinks he can have the position filled by the spring, but he needs someone to move in and take services till then. It's six months, David, and it's the other side of the country. I'm not sure we could do any better if you really think that's what you want. Father David's heart was pounding. His parachute was gaining definable features. He only now had to take the leap. Vancouver Island, he mused. But the alternative was unthinkable. He had not been able to talk to Beverly since their conversation in the church the night before. He had not been able to look at her. Eventually, she had left. He had spent the night at the church, praying and wrestling with what all these new revelations might mean, but his brain kept short-circuiting. He couldn't make sense of it. All he could think of was getting away, getting far away. Even now, that pull was too strong to resist. How would it work, he asked. Well, if you could get yourself out there within the next week or so, you could start the 1st of October. There's a rectory in Euclid, whatever, that's partially furnished. You could live there. And Doug would pay you a living allowance of $1,000 a month. We would continue your salary here so that Beverly and the kids would be looked after. I'd have Barbara take your services at Holy Cross this Sunday. She would read a pastoral letter from me explaining that you're on stress leave for six months. They don't need to know anything else, though it would be a good idea, David, for you to say something to your wardens before you go. Why would it have to be Barbara? Father David asked. She's a regional dean, David, the bishop replied. She can handle it. They fell silent for a few moments. So, the bishop was ready to wind up the deal. All right, Father David said. I'll call him back, but you're to call him yourself when you get there. He wrote down the number on a piece of paper. The bishop looked across at Father David. So, you're sure about this? The bishop asked again. Father David nodded. Here, then take this. The bishop rose and went to the closet that held his vestments. He groped far back on the top shelf and brought out a liquor bottle. This was a gift to me, but I don't drink scotch. You're not much of a drinker either, are you? Well, here. It's supposed to be pretty good. It's not for the road. It's for whenever you need it. And David, at some point, I sense you're going to need it. David took the bottle from the bishop. The unadorned black-and-white label said it was Lafroig, 16 years old, a single malt whiskey from the Isle of Isla. He had almost no idea what any of that meant. "'Sorry I don't have the bag or anything for you to take it in,' the bishop said. "'Bishop,' Father David said, rising to his feet. "'David, this once, couldn't you just call me Jim?' the bishop said. "'No, I'm sorry,' Father David replied. "'I couldn't. Bishop Hovey?' "'Thank you.' "'Okay,' the bishop said. "'Let me know how things go. "'And don't worry, I'll look in on Beverly.' "'As Father David left the bishop's office "'and made his way through the little maze "'of workstations in the outer office, "'he knew he must appear quite a sight. "'His eyes were red and swollen, "'his clothes had been slept in, "'and he gripped in his hand a bottle of whiskey. But this was only one of several hurdles to be faced, he knew, so he had better just plant one foot in front of the other. He left the building without looking up. The next hurdle was to get himself a car. He and Beverly had only one between them, but it was not thoughtfulness for her that prompted him to seek out his own transportation. He didn't want to have to negotiate with her about anything. He just wanted to leave. So his next appointment was with Harve, his sister Paula's husband. 
He was an auto wholesaler, a broker of trade-ins before they got to the used car lots. Christ, David, he said as he rose to meet him at his office, thick and bulky behind his walrus mustache. You look like hell. What's going on? Father David didn't want to talk about it. He just wanted to buy a car. Cheap. How cheap? Harv wanted to know. $3,000? Father David replied. That's not a lot, David. What's it for? Is this like a second vehicle for Bev? For groceries, running around, that sort of thing? That was as good an explanation as any, Father David thought. He nodded. Harv scratched his head, but was soon on the phone, turning up an old model Ford Escort wagon. Not a lot of pep, but good for groceries, he said. Did you want to go see it? No, that wouldn't be necessary, Father David said. He asked when it might be ready. Later that day, perhaps? That was a stretch, Harv answered, but if they got all the paperwork done now, he could have it by tomorrow. You sure you're okay? Harv asked as they shook hands. With those arrangements now completed, Father David had to reconcile himself with returning to the house to pack. He didn't want to deal with Beverly, this being the most formidable hurdle of all, but on the other side lay some promise of relief, some vague liberation, and this next step was necessary. He drove home, plotting out what he would need to pack. He made it to the study before Beverly realized he was home. She came and stood in the doorway as he began placing books in a cardboard carton. David, can we talk about this, she said. We need to talk. Nope, he said without looking up. Well, what are you doing? Are you leaving? She was sounding angry. Just tell me what you're doing, David. I'm going away for a while, he said. From his crouched position, he turned his body toward her, but still did not look up. I'm taking an interim ministry somewhere. You'll get my paycheck. Beverly was incredulous. You're leaving the parish? David, I can't believe this. You're leaving? It's only a leave of absence, he replied, glancing up at her. I'm not leaving the parish. Why? Why, David, she pressed him. You don't think we can work this out? I don't believe this. She stormed out of the room. He could hear her pacing the kitchen, throwing utensils into the sink. He continued placing books in a second carton, his mind racing. He'd need his 12-volume biblical commentary, though that would take up a full carton itself. And he'd need some of his church history texts and also his pastoral theology. His other reference books, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, Encyclopedia of Theology, the Bible Atlas, these he'd have to pick up from his office— he could hear Beverly building up a head of steam in the kitchen. She returned to the doorway. Well, were you going to tell Paul and Catherine, she demanded, or were you just going to walk out? Is this how we're going to deal with this? I'm so sorry I said anything to you. I trusted you. I thought we could work this through. I thought maybe we loved each other that much. Well, I guess not. You're just going to walk away. Great. Just great, David. He steeled himself as he rose to his feet, taking up a carton in his arms. He walked past her. He didn't want to get too close. This could get physical, he thought. Just keep moving, he told himself, placing the carton by the back door. He climbed the stairs to their bedroom two steps at a time and began pulling clothes from his dresser drawers. Beverly followed him. I told you I was sorry, she said. I told you it was all a mistake. So what's changed? What is it we can't talk about? Have you never made a mistake? I made a mistake, all right. So what's the problem? 
he turned to face her. Without warning, a legion of pent-up demons released itself, spewing across the room. It's everything, he screamed at her, his face contorting, spittle spraying from his mouth. It's everything. It's not just you. It's everything. He sat back onto the bed, shaking, throwing his face into his hands. God, he said, sobbing. It's just everything, okay? Okay, she said, backing slowly out of the doorway. Okay. But David, you have to tell us what you're doing, and you have to talk to the kids. He nodded, his face still in his hands. Paul and Catherine were alarmed before their father said a thing. They had never seen him like this before. He'd have been angry and depressed, but this was something else. This was frightening. Beverly had called the two into the living room after they arrived home from school. Father David was standing by the fireplace. Beverly said simply that their father had something to tell them. Paul sat on the couch, his face expressionless. Catherine stood behind Paul, her hands gripping the back of the couch. Beverly sat leaning forward on a chair between David and the children. Some things have happened, he began. Your, your mother and I are going through something, and I have to go away for a little while. Only a few months. A few months, Catherine explained. Why a few months? I just... Father David tried to clear his mind. I just need to go away, okay? I can't explain it. I'm going to take an interim ministry someplace where I can be alone for a while. I've got to work some things out on my own. Where? Catherine demanded, getting shrill. Father David took a deep breath. British Columbia, he said. Beverly's mouth opened. British Columbia, she said? David! Catherine ran over to her mother and broke down, falling at her feet and sobbing into her lap. Paul's eyes dropped to the carpet. I'm, I, I'm sorry, Father David tried to say. Th th this is nothing you've done. I just need to work it out by myself. But why British Columbia, David? Beverly asked him. Will you be coming back, Dad? Paul asked, looking directly at his father. Of course, Father David tried to sound firm. Paul got up and left the room. Catherine and her mother were both crying now. Why is he doing this? Catherine was asking. Why? Beverly held her daughter to her, stroking her hair. I I'm sorry, Father David said. I'll write. I'll phone. I'll be... His voice trailed off. A car horn blew from the driveway. That's my ride, he said. He took a step toward Beverly and Catherine, but Beverly's eyes narrowed at his approach. Bastard, she mouthed over Catherine's head. So he turned and left. The taxi took Father David to his mother's house where he would spend the night. This would be his last hurdle. Soon, there would be no turning back. As he lifted his suitcase and his cartons of books from the trunk of the cab, piling them on the curb, he wondered what sort of reception he would receive from his mother. He paid the driver and turned to face the house. She was already standing in the doorway. He greeted her with a kiss on the cheek. She moved back into the house as he made several trips from the curb to the vestibule. 
Do you want a cup of tea? she asked him, when the last carton was brought in and he had closed the front door. Thank you, mother, he replied, taking off his jacket and wandering into the living room. He was still feeling shaky from the scene he had left at home. He wasn't anxious to open the whole subject once again. She did not try to start a conversation with him from the kitchen. It had always been a rule in their house not to talk between rooms, but there seemed something deliberate in her leaving him alone while she made the tea. This had become a familiar house to Father David, though he had never lived in it himself. It was the house she had bought with the insurance money when his father died twenty years ago. David's father, Franklin Corcoran, had been a parish priest, and Father David had grown up in a series of large draft directories. So had his mother, Lucille, whose own father had been a priest and then a bishop. She had no intention, when the opportunity arose, of cheating herself out of a proper home. This small but stately bungalow set on a winding tree-lined street in Leaside, a pre-war Toronto suburb, she had lived comfortably since Franklin had died of a heart attack in his study while preparing his Christmas sermon. It had been a shock, of course. He had been so vital and alive right up to the moment of his death, but his passing also became a source of liberation for Lucille. After a period of mourning, it seemed that she began to blossom. Her fashion choices became more colorful, more cosmopolitan. She began moving in an active social circle of widows and couples her age and appeared, over the years, actually to be growing younger. She attended the local Anglican church, making sandwiches or baking tarts when called upon by the ACW, but she kept her distance, joining no committees or guilds. Much to Father David's frustration, she did not even have an opinion on the present rector and seemed to be oblivious to the various tensions and problems with which the parish was known to be plagued. She had managed, somehow, simply to rise above it. If her husband's death had released her from the role of dutiful rector's wife, it also gave her a perspective on her grown children. They were living their own lives now, making their own decisions— she was no longer required to will them through each new phase of their lives. She could now begin willing herself through her own. As she was able, she went on cruises and signed up for courses and attended symphony orchestra concerts. So, when she asked Father David about his plans, she was interested, but not as a mother who felt she had to interfere to set things right. She was interested as one adult to another. As she set the tray on the coffee table before them, she simply wanted to know his plans. Well, Father David began, I've accepted an interim ministry. It's in British Columbia. He looked over at her for a reaction. Seeing none, he continued, Vancouver Island, actually. It's for six months. I hope we'll have figured out some things by then. What things, David? She asked him, handing him his cup of tea. Things, I don't know. Beverly and I seem to be going through something right now. I don't know what it is. I don't know, Mother. Everything just seems so confusing. And Beverly, she asked, what does she say about this separation? Father David frowned. He put his teacup down. It's not good, Mother. She's not very happy about it. Neither are Paul and Catherine. They think, they think I'm running away or something. Are you, David? She asked him. Are you running away? He felt his emotions rising to the surface again. She did not look away. 
He struggled to gain control of his cursed, quivering chin and to hold back the tears that were welling in his eyes. He tried to speak, but couldn't. She had her answer. "'You know, David,' she said pensively, "'you were always such a serious child. I used to call you my little man. You always wanted to know what was expected of you, and then you tried to do just that. You wanted to please everyone.' and you got ever so mad if you were playing a game with your friends and they didn't play by the rules. It used to make me feel sad for you. You seemed like such a lonely little boy, like your father in some ways. She sipped at her tea, placing the cup back on the saucer she held in her hand. You won't know this, I suppose, she said, looking amused, but since your father died, I've had several suitors. Father David looked at her, surprised, "'It's true,' she said with a smile. "'More than two. "'They wanted to marry you?' he said. "'Is that so hard to believe?' she asked, smiling. "'No, not at all, really,' he said. "'I just never really thought about it.' "'Lucille smiled again, nodding slightly. "'Well, it's true. "'But I didn't want to get married again. "'Once was enough. "'I loved your father. "'He was good to me and good to you and Paula. "'There are days I miss him terribly. "'But I don't miss—' being married. I don't know if you can understand that. While we were married, it would never have occurred to me to leave your father. I was happy as far as I could tell, and besides, there simply wasn't the time to think about it. But when he died, I guess I just didn't want to have to work so hard again. Father David thought about this for a moment. Why are you telling me this? he asked. I don't know, she said. But do you want to know what I think? I think this plan of yours is not about you and Beverly. I don't think it's about your marriage. I think it's about you. I might wish you didn't have to do this. I mean, poor Beverly. And the children? She shook her head. But I don't suppose at this stage there is any other way. She looked at him. So you just do what you have to do. Father David was confused by her words, but he raised his eyes to hers. Thank you, Mother, he said. Well, I'll get supper started, she said, rising. As she carried the tray into the kitchen, she called over her shoulder, You should phone your sister. She's worried about you. That night, settling deep into the soft mattress of the bed in the guest room, Father David slept soundly, and as he slept, he dreamed. It was a moonlit night. Silhouettes of winter trees framed the hillside, their bare branches swaying in a soundless wind. His mother, wearing an apron, stood beneath one of those trees, waiting for him. As he approached, he realized they were in a cemetery, a Gothic cemetery with tall monuments surrounded by low wrought iron fences. She watched him as he made his way between the headstones and the fresh mounds of earth. He was afraid, but her presence strengthened him for what he had to do. He found his way to an old gravesite, unmarked, a concrete vault set deep into the earth, like a bathtub. He lowered himself down into it. It was larger than he expected. At one end, where the drain should be, was a small opening plugged by a tiny metal seal. He had to grip the seal by its small handle and turn it to open and remove it. It exposed a deep hole containing another similar contraption— Beneath that was another, and then another. Removing each one in turn, reaching down deeper each time, he came finally to a small 
metal container. He grasped the container by its handle and brought it all the way up from the bottom. Pulling a small tab and peeling back the lid, he saw a moist pink substance inside, like pressed ham. He knew it to be the preserved heart of a great and revered holy woman, a saint. A tiny detachable fork on the lid permitted him to withdraw one squared piece that had been cut the full length of the heart. It slid out easily. Father David awoke with a start. The sun was rising. It was time to leave. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. In the next episode, for the first time in his life, Father David sets out with little idea of his destination. He's a man who prefers to know where he is and where he's going. But faith doesn't always work like that. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. (laughs) 